Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Joshua 14. Joshua chapter 14. And uh, I would like to read this whole chapter, verse only 15 verses, and then we'll introduce it a bit, and then we will get into the lessons that I think or at least some of the lessons, there are many more. I'm not giving all of them, obviously, that we don't have the time for. But some of the lessons that will be drawn or can be drawn from chapter 14 as we think on these things. So let's begin reading with verse 1. And these are the countries which the children of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel distributed for inheritance to them. By lot was their inheritance, as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses, for the nine tribes and for the half tribe. And Moses had given the inheritance, for Moses had given the inheritance of two tribes and a half tribe on the other side, Jordan. But unto the Levites he gave none inheritance among them. For the children of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. Therefore they gave no part unto the Levites in the land, save cities to dwell in, with their suburbs, for their cattle and for their substance. As the Lord commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did, and they divided the land. Then the children of Judah came unto Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said unto him, Thou knowest the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God, concerning me and thee in Kadesh Barnea. Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in mine heart. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance and thy children's forever because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord hath kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years, even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old. As yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now, for war both to go out and to come in. Now therefore give me this mountain, whereof the Lord spake in that day. For thou heardest in that day how the Anakims were there, and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be, the Lord will be with me. Then I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him, and gave unto Caleb the son of Jephunneh, Hebron for an inheritance. Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, unto this day, because that he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And the name of Hebron before was Kerjath Arba, which Arba was a great man among the Anakims. And the land had rest from war. When we come to such passages like these, in the Word of God, it will do us well to remember that such passages were not only preserved for that generation and the Israelite generations to follow, but they were preserved also for us. This passage of Scripture is in your Bible today for you. 
chapter 13, and even chapter 15, which has 63 verses with all those names, was written for you and me. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, Paul says, Now all these things happen unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. So those things that took place to Israel in that time and those things that were preserved, they were preserved not only for their sake, but specifically and especially for us. This is the end. There will be no more after this except heaven and eternity. And what these things are then are for us. So we must never forget that. And I realize when you get in your Bible reading, you get a little bogged down by all these phrases and words and funny names. There aren't any funnier than some of this silly names you hear today that are being called upon children, but they're names nonetheless, and they are preserved for us. Think about that. God had you in view thousands of years ago, yea, from all eternity for that matter, but He had us in view when He saw that these words were penned. Paul again says in Romans 15.4, They are written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So while such Scriptures as these may seem kind of far away in their time and in their culture and, and even in their significance as far as we're concerned, but God says they are re- written for us specifically and that God's intention was for us to have them. If this wasn't important, he would have done away with what we would call the Jewish Old Testament, as some would call it, and just give us the New Testament. He could have allowed those things to perish and fall away, but he did not. He preserved Genesis through Malachi for and specifically for us. And they show us examples, they show us admonitions, they show us the patience and comfort that, as the Scripture says, that we would have hope. So when we come to chapter 14, we should have hope. And that's the right way to look at such passages as chapter 14. And it is the right way, rather than the way of unbelief and murmuring and complaining that some do when they have to read these passages, or they have to have these passages preached to them. They murmur and complain and see very little in them for them. Well, again, because they don't understand this very basic principle The Scriptures are for us. They're not just for the Jew. They're for us. And particularly, especially for the elect in this age. So with that in mind, then we're going to look at this chapter and also chapter 15, Lord willing, next time. So just to get you primed to realize there is substance to all of this, whether we can draw all that out of it or not. The point of it is, it's true And it is for us. But our text today speaks again something of the inheritance that the children of Israel received. Each receiving, as you notice there in verse 2, their lot, as the Lord had obviously commanded Moses previously in the uh, books of Moses. Notice it is now in the hands of the heads of Israel to distribute what the Lord has entitled them to have. We see that in verse 1 and in verse 2 of our text. The, uh, the priests were in on this, Joshua was in on this, as well as the heads of the fathers of the tribes of Israel. They were a part of this distribution of the land. The whole people then, in reality, 
was going to benefit from what was being taken place in this. So in verses 1 through 5, we see the discussion, or it does discuss, the distribution of the land to Joseph's children, in particular, Manasseh and Ephraim. So that's what the first five verses are dealing with. And then beginning in verse 6, all the way down to verse 15, we see that the land uh, is given unto Caleb and something of his faith and his endeavor. We see something of the character of this Christian man named Caleb in the days of not only Moses, but in the days of Joshua. And so these are the things that we're going to draw from this morning. These two things. One, the distribution of the land to Joseph's children and the land that is given unto Caleb and something of his character. So that's what we're going to look at today. And I will handle this chapter basically as I've been doing. We read it as we've already done. And then we will kind of draw out the lessons from it. Well, I've already read it, and I've already given you the two heads, and that's verses 1 through 5 and also 6 through 15. Now I want us to draw the lessons from this passage of Scripture. First one is this. The promises of God are true. You say, well, we've talked about that. Yes, we have. And you know why we're going to talk about it again? Because God does. He's discussed this, Moses, or Joshua has, all through this book. Something about the promises of God. And every time we see here that the promises are laid out as something that are true. And in verses 1 through 5, he reminds the children of Israel and us. And us. Remember that. Us. These are written for us. These things are here for us to remind us of the fulfillment of the promises that God gave to Moses to, uh, unto Israel. Notice in verse 3, this is Moses doing. For Moses had given the inheritance of two tribes and a half tribe on the other side Jordan, but unto the Levites he gave none inheritance among them. So this was something he's reminding them of that has already taken place. This isn't new to them. This isn't a new revelation, as it can be found in the Word of God. But this isn't a point. This is not what we have here. What we have here is, quote, old stuff. This, again, telling us of the fact that Moses had promised that land. God actually did. But Moses promised that land that two and a half tribes on the other side of Jordan would get this. And he says, look, this is the point of this chapter, look. Two and a half tribes have already received the land on the other side. What is that telling them there? What's the lesson in that? Well, yes, it's true, isn't it? God is going to fulfill what He has said. Because look, He's already done taking care of two and a half tribes as far as the other side of Jordan is concerned. So this shows to them that it was real. That this promise was so. There was a reality here that they could really take their eyes and see. Look, they're saying, they possessed it. Notice verse 5. As the Lord commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did, and they divided the land. They did it. How did they do it? It was based on that promise. And here we see, just in a small manner, the fulfillment of it already. So these reminders here then, again, this is old stuff, these reminders were helpful for them to continue on. Being reminded, brethren, over and over again of our promises that God has in us is not 
given out of just simple repetition. It isn't given to make our Bibles more full. It's given for a specific purpose. It is given so that they, and now us, would have hope, according to the Apostle Paul. This is a reminder to them that God's Word is true, that God Himself is true, and that should give us then hope. It's given as well to strengthen our faith. And also, as we see in verse 5, to cause us to be obedient. And brethren, you and I haven't arrived to that heavenly inheritance, have we? We still, Lord willing, have a ways to go. And none of us here, though, are beyond that exhortation then to remember. And I think I was mentioning the other night at the uh, Bible study with the young men. Actually, I had everybody in there this time listening to it. And one of the things that we're so apt to say and kind of brush it off is that when someone tells us something we already know, what do we do? I know, I know, I know. And now what we do? It's like, don't bother me with that truth. I'm, I've already been well schooled in that. And we try to, and then we, we do what we don't think we'll do. We actually forget it. We really don't know it as well as we think we do. And so these repetitions are given to us here so that we will remember. And brethren, I don't preach anything new to you. If you've read the Bible through once, you've seen at least what's there in a nutshell. And all we're doing is just hopefully bringing out things that need to be underscored on a continual basis. Remember. And again, none of us here this morning are beyond the exhortation to remember. You may be thinking you are, but I assure you, you're not. I'm not. Second Peter, that foundational verse or passage from the New Testament stating this very principle. He says, wherefore, I will, that I will not be negligent. Notice this. He won't be negligent. And what would he be negligent in if he didn't do this? To put you always, that is continually, constantly, in remembrance of these things, though ye know them. You know them. He's not telling you anything new. You know these things. But he wants to remind you once again. And brethren, we need that. You don't think you do. I don't think I do. But we do. How do I know that? Because God's Word declares it. It's without argument. You can argue all day, come up with all your good reasons, come up with how much it bothers you to be reminded of this. Oh, I've heard that again. But brethren, God has spoken when it comes to this. So you're not really as smart as you think you are. None of us are. That's just silly, sinful pride rising up in us. We're ready for the old, I know, I know, I know. Don't bother me. I know that already. In other words, don't prick my conscience right now with things that I really need to be doing. That's what that really means. I'm failing in it. I need to be doing it. And all you're doing is reminding me of it. And that's pride. Not wanting to do what it needs to do. 
He goes on to say, yea, I think it meet. This is what I should be doing. As long as I am in this tabernacle, and by that he means children, he's not standing in the Jewish tabernacle or anything like that. He means in his body. As long as he is alive, that's what he's saying. As long as I am alive to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. One of my jobs, simply, though very difficult, is to stir you up by way of remembrance. And even this stuff I'm telling you now, you know, don't you? You've heard me say it. You've heard me expound upon it. You've heard me push you to it. You've heard me encourage you to remember the things that you are supposed to remember. But we all need that. We all do. So that's the first lesson we can see from here. Or one of the first. Secondly, this promise of that very thing in verses 1 through 5 becomes then the motivation for Caleb to go into action. Notice in verse 6. Then the children of Judah came unto Joshua and Gilgal and Caleb also comes there too. And he reminds Joshua of what took place in the days of Moses. Now, you remember Caleb was one of the twelve spies that Moses had sent out to spy out the land. Uh, Joshua also was one of them. And, of course, he and Joshua were very careful to believe that God would fulfill his promise to his people and to possess the land, you remember. They went in and they said, yeah, there's giants there. Yeah, there's terrible people over there. But God has promised that land to us so we can take it. The other ten, of course, disagreed uh, greatly with the summation of what Caleb and Joshua had to say. But in verse 9, Caleb says, And Moses, or this is what's recorded, And Moses swear on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance, and thy children's forever. Because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. Joshua was, or excuse me, Caleb was aware of that promise. And notice, after 45 years, 45 years later, Caleb now comes to lay claim to that promise. Not the day after Moses said this, but 45 years later. That's only six years younger than I am. That's double some of you, some of you children, triple some of you children here this morning. 45 years. Get that in your head this morning. 45 years. He carried in his thinking, in his heart, and in his obedience and life towards God, he carried that promise. Forty-five years. Notice verse 10 and 11. And now, behold, the Lord hath kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years, even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old. Doesn't sound like he's 
angry that he had to wait 45 years, does it? He had some patience here, didn't he? We go to Lancy after a few days, few weeks, few months. Here's Caleb serving God for 45 more years faithfully. And now he's come to Joshua to remind him of that thing. Notice here then, his faith was obviously firm, wasn't it? His resolution from that faith, from those promises. Let's back it up and get them all in there. His resolution from his faith, from his promises was as strong as he was. Notice again, verse 11 and 12. And as yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now for war both to go out and to come in. Now therefore give me this mountain. Not give me the rest home so I can take my ease and never have to worry about godly things any longer just to be taken care of. No, he says, give me the mountain. Eighty-five years old. Now, true, most of us at eighty-five don't have that kind of strength. This was a blessing of God, obviously, and a, and a rare thing. But nonetheless, the truth of it is, his heart, his mind, his the grace of God was very operative in him. And let me assure you this morning, this is no self-confidence in his boasting. Notice he says this, this mentioned here three times in relation to him. He wholly followed the Lord. Three times. Verse 8, verse 9, and verse 14. He wholly followed the Lord. And it wasn't this American individualism that has that reeks in our society. Rather, it was a man here who was trusting in God. Now therefore give me this mountain whereof the Lord spake in that day, verse twelve. For thou heardest in that day how the Anakims were there, and that the cities were great and fenced, if so be the Lord will be with me. Then I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. It wasn't Joshua, uh, Caleb here with his boasting, proud boasting. He said this under the, 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 the covering of the Lord's will. The Lord helping him in this. The third thing we can see is Caleb is an example to us that grace and faith grows. Caleb was not a, as some who are content to believe and then do nothing and remain doing nothing. He was strong in the Lord at 40 and so at 85. Jeremiah speaks of this kind of Christian fruit in the life of those who grow up in the Lord and grow holy and live and breathe and have their being in God. Not only in their young days, but if they are converted in the young days and they serve God all their lives until they get old and then they still serve Him in some manner. They still believe 
the promises of God. Again, that's, that's how it all started, wasn't it? It wasn't service first. It was faith in the promises of God given that moved Caleb. Jeremiah discusses them this way. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters and that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green and not be careful in the year of drought. Neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Do we retire from the Christian walk? That's what many believe. God says, no, you don't. It's a lifelong occupation, vocation, job, if you will, children. Caleb went on in maturity. Because when God truly does a work of grace in the heart, He completes it. That's the difference of true salvation and the spurious salvation that many in America experience. They start out great, and then a little while, the zeal is gone. Why? Because there was really no root of the matter in them. That's the parable of the sower. And that is describing American Christianity to a T. That wasn't said of Caleb. The fourth thing, Caleb's faith manifested itself in obedience. How would we have known that Caleb had such great faith? Because he wore a sign, I have faith. Remember as we were discussing in James, you can't see faith in others. You can't even see it in yourself. It is demonstrated or evidenced by our obedience to the will of God. So wherever you find true faith, you will find true obedience to the will of God. And this is Caleb's life. This is Caleb's example to us this morning. Yes, he believed the promises. Truly and really and savingly. And he also worked it out in his obedience for 45 more years. Fifthly, we too, brethren, are to be example to others and especially to the younger believers. And whether I, you say younger believers in the sense of, well, they're, they're 15 and they're young and they believe, or just younger believers that they may have been converted later in life, but just very young in the Lord. We are, though, for those of us who are older in years, both in grace, and we trust, and in the other, that we are examples to other younger believers. Caleb, once again, illustrates this truth for us, doesn't he? He's 85, and he's not ready to quit. He's not ready to toss in the the towel Caleb illustrates for us a man who is a shining example to the younger generation that is sitting here listening to him. Not only that, he is a shining example to the same generation in which he's living. 
Remember last week we said Joshua was probably about 85 as well at this time. Joshua as well is hearing these things. So this morning, if you are a seasoned believer, are you that example to the younger generation? To the younger believers? If not, why not? Is it your tomfoolery, your your silliness, that they see more than your godliness? Is that what you're known by? The court jester for Christ? Or are you seen as the serious, sober, yet content and happy Christian, seasoned in the things of the Lord? Yes, you have your trials. Yes, you have your adversities. Yes, you have your your agonies in the garden, just as our our Lord Jesus did. But as we talk about in the next hour, you have your joy of salvation. Sixthly, Caleb demonstrates godly manliness. Godly manliness. We live, brethren, in a feminine age. Men are sissified, if I may call it that this morning, in our day. The media and Hollywood's example set forth in our day of what a man is, is pathetic. And those of you who want to go back and watch the old TV movies, you'll see a man be made out of a fool by his wife, even in those days. Why? Because they had an agenda. The world does have an agenda. And it is to sap the spiritual strength out of Christian men. It's to make them look like wimps. And this is why Paul has to admonish the Christians there at Corinth who was steeped in pagan heathenism, just like we are. And he tells them there, what? In the closing chapter of that of chapter 16, quit you like men. Be men. That's the scriptural admonition. Notice Caleb again over and over and says, Look, I have wholly followed the Lord. That's manhood. That's being true Christian. Godliness. And I'm not talking about manhood in the Marlboro man type mentality. Sitting on his, cow, uh, his, his horse with his, his uh, hat on and a cigarette in his mouth. And where's his family? It's gone. I mean, his family is his horses and cows, I guess. That's American individualism. That's not biblical. Scriptural men. Whether you use the term men or manhood, that's not the point. And I'm not trying to get into this you know, American junk that's known as manlyhood. I'm talking about scriptural, biblical manhood. What it means to be a Christian man. Or a Christian woman, for that matter. Notice, he says here, he wholly followed the Lord. And he doesn't say this in boasting. He doesn't say it in some kind of a self-confidence. He says it because it's the truth. Men will speak the truth. Because they're not afraid of the consequences. In fact, Moses even affirms this, doesn't he? In one of the statements that says that he truly followed the Lord, wholly followed the Lord, Moses speaks it. Moses affirms this. So let me ask you this morning, can this be said of us?
men here this morning going to be said of us? Can others testify that of us? Moses did to Caleb. Again, let me tell you, this is no idle boasting, but it's, but it's a reality of what it means to be a redeemed man, a man before other redeemed men and even men of this world. They need those examples. So what an example then Caleb was to the younger generation who lived among him. When he heard him, them, him say, when they heard him say, Give me this mountain. And then took the mountain. What an example he was to those younger men. Look, Caleb said it, and by God's grace, as Caleb himself mentioned it, that it will be the Lord's will, he did it. What an example to me, those younger men would have said. We say, what's a biblical example of manhood? Well, here's one. Caleb. I'll give you the best biblical example, though, of manhood is in the life and the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He possessed the full range of what it meant to be a man. Save sin. He didn't have sin. But his affections, or what we would call emotions, are clearly outlined in Scripture. He wept. He wept. I guess I get the right word. He wept. Is that manhood? Well, if you don't think Jesus is a man, you wouldn't agree with that, would you? The Stoics in the Bible weren't the heroes, by the way. They were the bad guys. Dummy. Talking to me. Dummy. They were not the good guys. That was a false religion. And, by the way, those Stoics did have emotions. You studied the junk that they wrote. Don't do it. But if you did, you'd find out they were based on emotions. So that's there. Now, again, I know emotions have been taken and made uh, perverted. But you won't see affections perverted in Christ. You see his manners. You can talk about manners in Scripture. Remember when he got jumped on, jumped on the Pharisee who didn't wash his feet when he came in? Those were cultural manners of that day. He spoke upon it. His speech, what he said to them, his actions. His countenance, we got this idea today that it doesn't matter how you look. I was instructing the men yesterday in our class that, yes, it does matter how we look. People are looking at you, especially when you're standing out in front of them. They're looking. And I said, we teach them. We teach our congregation. It's great you take notes, but you better be looking because that's how you hear the best. What are you giving them to look at? Was my admonition. So our countenance, our action, all of this is laid out for us. This is why I think we're going to go to the book of Mark again to go through the Gospels once again to see something of the life of our Lord. Why? Because we see in Him all that we're supposed to be. 
He is that perfect example. 